Encore episode. Everybody in the healthcare industry getting up in everyone else's business. Today, I speak with Eric Bricker, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This episode was one of the most popular episodes in the past 12 months. Since it aired, there was a show with Kevin Schulman, that's episode 366, that added some context, which I would recommend, and also one with David Muelstein, episode 364. Those two shows and this one are a good three-pack. And hey, here's something new that we're going to try out. Coming up in December, Dr. Bricker and I will host a smallish virtual chat to discuss the topics covered in this episode. It will be a conversation, not a presentation, so therefore the why behind the smallish in air quotes. If you are kind of thinking this is something that you'd like to do, go to our website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, and scroll down to the Join the Relentless Tribe. When we get our act together, we'll send out the details for how to sign up in a future email. I'm thinking it will be very cool to get a chance for the great people who support our show enough to actually get a weekly email to talk amongst ourselves. With that, here's your encore. Today, I'm speaking with Eric Bricker, MD, about how so many entities in healthcare are getting up in other people's business and swimming in other people's traditional lanes. We kick off the conversation talking about the payer, PBM, and hospital system horizontal consolidation that has transpired over the past decades. That's plural. Horizontal consolidation is pretty much the easiest way to decimate all competition in your own swim lane so that you can charge more and not worry so much about patient slash customer slash member experience because the patients slash customers slash members have no better alternative. They effectively have nowhere or few other places at best to go if they leave you. So what's the impact of horizontal consolidation? Commercial insurance costs have gone up 4x the rate of other benchmark goods and services. Let's spend a moment, shall we, on the human impact of all this extreme consolidation. The impact is your sister, your neighbor, your son, your friends. So many feel so much pressure financially in our country today because of healthcare costs. Even families earning significantly more than median household income are foregoing care because of costs. This was in a recent paper. You can check it out in the show notes. But the direct observable toxicity, financial toxicity resulting from high healthcare patient costs is really only the tip of the iceberg here. As Dave Chase from Health Rosetta has said a million times already, high healthcare costs have a multitude of effects on employers big and small. One big one is if healthcare costs more, then there's less money for salaries. Dave, citing lots of evidence, has long attributed wage stagnation in this country to accelerating healthcare costs, which became even more rampant during periods of industry consolidation. Dave Chase leads Health Rosetta, by the way. Here's another human toxicity. Listen to episode 337 with Olivia Webb on the impact on her life as a result of the undeniably and unquestionably common non-excellent treatment by the PBMs and SPPs that she has to deal with. Because, as Dr. Bricker also says, no competition means basically not a whole lot of concern about patient experience. 
Why should a for-profit business spend money to improve something when there's nothing really to be gained for them financially to do so? I mean, the best a patient can do most of the time is hop from the frying pan into the fire. That's what happens when there's no competition or no real competition. Also consider the burned out clinicians who have to get stuck in the middle of this. Nobody really cares at the monopoly customer service paperwork quagmire. By the way, here's a sidebar that might come as a surprise to some people, but please take this in the spirit with which it's intended. All of us innovators and lifelong learners, we want to update our beliefs when the facts show us an updated conclusion. So I have learned that all of this consolidation was going on long before the ACA. My point here is to please look into this well-documented trendline before reflexively tweeting that the ACA drove consolidation. Dr. Bricker and others like Dr. Mai Pham have told me that in their opinion, low interest rates, cheap debt, and a desire to eliminate competition are wildly powerful drivers of consolidation. Anyway, about nine minutes into the interview with Dr. Bricker, if you're one of the ones who knows all you care to know about horizontal consolidation, about nine minutes, we get into vertical integration, vertical consolidation, and this is where things get interesting. And when I say interesting, I mean it in a we live in interesting times kind of way. The vertical consolidation conversation segues into whose swim lane that the digital health and other innovators, or dare I say disruptors, are diving into and whose lunch they're aiming to eat. Dr. Bricker probably needs no introduction. He is the force behind A to Z Healthcare, which you can find online on Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. He has worked as a clinician in healthcare finance. If that weren't enough, he's also been an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur, I might add. He started one of the first healthcare navigation firms. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Eric Bricker, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks so much for having me, Stacey. Let's talk about a megatrend or whatever we want to call it. Yeah, so Stacy, you made a very uh, important point where you said everybody else is swimming in everybody else's lanes or everyone's getting up in everybody else's business, which is so funny because I was literally talking to another longtime uh, consultant like two days ago, and he literally said the exact same thing. And I'm like, oh, Stacy just said that. And other people have said that too. What do I specifically mean by that? It's the whole quote unquote pay vider movement, right? Where more insurance carriers are actually moving in the direction of providing more patient care. Okay, so that's one. What's one area? You have then individual employers who are then forming direct contracts with hospital systems, sort of going around the insurance network. So they're, they're essentially creating their own network, right? So they're, they're, they're getting into the, the health insurance carrier's business. There are more hospital systems that have actually created their own health insurance plans you know, started mostly in the Medicare Advantage space, but starting to to bleed over into plans for employers as well. Uh, and I can go on and on. But this whole, you know, sort of everybody getting into what traditionally was not their area of healthcare, and now they're getting into that area of healthcare, is certainly something that seems to have increased and, and it continues slash has accelerated during the pandemic. Even on the pharmacy side, you have employers, you know, the state of Ohio starting a PBM. You have every health system in the country opening up a specialty pharmacy. The health systems with Civica RX making a pharmaceutical company. So for sure, you have adjacent players who are creeping into making frenemies left and right. Let's put it that way. That's right. That's a very good way of putting it. So why? 
Why is this happening? There has been a ton of horizontal integration within each of those segments. At a very basic level, the insurance carriers have been doing this for 20, 30 years. You talk to longtime insurance brokers, they're like, you know, MetLife used to be in this business and there used to be Oxford Health Plan. There actually used to be choices. And now it's Blue Cross United Signet. Now you got four. There's been all of this consolidation on the insurance carrier side. Now, likewise, on the hospital system side, you've had these hospital systems that have just gobbled up community hospitals. Some of them have merged across states, whether it's Common Spirit or Ascension or even Trinity. I mean, all these hospital systems that have just become huge. And those are big national ones, but you even have more regional ones like Sutter out in California or Baylor Scott & White here in Texas. You've got all these hospital systems that have also, at the regional level, done a ton of consolidation, a horizontal integration, if you will, similar to what the carriers have done. Likewise, on the PBM side, I mean, you essentially only have three. You've got OptumRx, CVS Caremark, and you've got Express Scripts, which is now Evernorth within Cigna. So you don't really have like choices in uh, PBMs. Not that you had much of a choice before anyway, but you only have a choice in PBMs as well. So fine. Why does that consolidation occur? If you are an organization, if you're a business, like you hate competition. Like Peter Thiel was like, competition is a sin. Or you know, maybe that was Rockefeller. And one of the best ways to get rid of competition is through mergers and acquisitions. You don't want competition because you want to be able to raise prices and you actually want to be able to decrease your level of service because that allows you to make more profit. Whether it's raising premiums or raising ASO fees or raising the cost of a knee replacement if you're a hospital system. And if you're one of these organizations, you want to do that. You want to raise prices. Okay, great. You can only do horizontal integration for so long. And then you get stopped. You can't do any more horizontal integration for a variety of reasons. Then the, the other way they can then create market pressure is then through vertical integration. And so when you see health insurance carriers now providing care, that's a form of vertical integration. When you see hospital systems actually providing Medicare Advantage plans and actually, you know, offering health insurance plans, that's a vertical integration. When you see employers like the Pacific Business, Business Group on Health or, you know, the Purchasers Business Group on Health, you see employers who have unfortunately had to pay these higher prices and they themselves are pushing back by creating their own alternatives to this horizontal and vertical integration by creating their own PBM. So, you know, as is always, you follow the money. So the reason why all of this quote unquote getting up in each other's business has been happening is because horizontal integration within a sector has been maximized. Now they're going into vertical integration and both of those moves are in the name of higher prices and higher margins. If we get consolidation, you would expect and think that they would be integrating their systems, that there would be interoperability between these entities. And it turns out not so much. The other area which I've been kind of keeping an eye on lately is if you don't necessarily have a business strategy within your core business, shareholders want growth, right? So That's the, right. the one way that a lot of these entities are driving growth, like this was just a big deal in the durable medical equipment business, right? how they're driving growth is inorganically. Like you can increase sales wildly if you buy another company. That's right. That's right. So the one thing that does concern me about a lot of this consolidation is that it doesn't necessarily represent, you know, innovation in the marketplace or anything. That's right. It, it basically just represents somebody growing inorganically by buying a competitor 
And then again, speaking with evidence here, when a health system consolidates, their prices on average go up 23% above already high prices. That's exactly right. So then we've got these, I'm going to say, potentially non-innovative businesses that are growing inorganically by sucking in competitors left and right, creating a monopolistic situation and raising prices. Like that doesn't seem to be a way to benefit patients. Oh, no. Oh, no. So a couple of points. One, I agree with you. Two, one of the most fascinating exercises that I have done is I have started listening to the quarterly earnings calls of the health insurance carriers because there you hear what their true priorities are. And they're amazingly transparent about it. They are looking to maximize earnings because the way that they maximize their share prices by maximizing their earnings. And how do they maximize in- earnings? They say to the analysts, they're like, you know, we're, we're increasing our script count. They want to have as many doctors writing as many prescriptions as possible because that's how they make more money with their PBM. So they absolutely want growth. That is their number one priority. Now, when you're in the healthcare business, this is, again, my opinion, you can make more money at the detriment of the patient. So this is, this is the ultimate conundrum. What is best for the patient does not necessarily make the most money. When you have that misalignment, the way that our healthcare system is set up now, the making the most money wins and the patient loses. The key to solving this is not to like stop people from being greedy. Like we're not going to, we're not going to solve greed. But the point is, is that we need to align the incentives such that a company makes more money, the more it helps a patient. So if you improve a patient's health, if you improve outcomes, then you should make more money. And it's the lack of alignment around that that causes the healthcare system to make a ton of money at the detriment of the patient. I was reading Dan O'Neill's Twitter feed the other day, and he made a comment about the vertically integrated entities. And he said something like, you know, you listen to the earnings call and they're actually putting in emails these anti-competitive practices. I mean, they're like writing them in emails. Oh, yeah. And, and he said, so if for some reason, the healthcare industry is above the law question mark it's crazy some of the stuff that goes on well it's not that it's above the law it's that it is again this is my opinion is that it is just intentionally obscured i mean look it's incredibly complicated it's so complicated that the vast majority of people who even work within the industry actually don't understand how it works i mean stacy you actually understand healthcare better than 99% of the people that actually work in the healthcare industry itself and so the reason why it, this is allowed to propagate is cuz people just don't understand it because it has been so obscured. Now, I'll add a a quick anecdote around this. A large Texas hospital system actually hired a very famous and expensive outside consulting firm as to whether or not they should start an ACO or start their own health plan. They did, you know, big financial analysis. And because you talk about fee-for-service, FFS, a lot on this podcast, those consultants came back to this hospital system and said, you should not start an ACO and you should not start a health plan. You should just milk fee-for-service for as much as you can, as long as you can, because that is in the financial best interest of your hospital. It's sad. But, but it's also sad that you hire a consultant and implicitly that consultant infers that you have one goal. Right. Like here you are a hospital system with a logo on your door or a motto on your door, which probably has the word patient in it and serving the patient. And then a consultant that you hire assumes that your one goal is a financial one. 
I mean, that's just, yeah, something to contemplate. But they don't even say, but that's where delusion is very powerful, right? Denial is incredibly powerful. They don't ever say to themselves that. What they say to themselves is, well, no margin, no mission. In order for us to achieve our mission of high quality care and to be a vital pillar in this community, then we need to have, um, uh, we need to have financial strength. And so we're not doing this out of greed. We're doing this out of the charitable ambitions of our heart. Yeah, and as Vikas Sani from the Laun Institute has said more than once, no margin, no mission. It seems to be an excuse for all sorts of questionable right. behavior. Scotch and Jane says the same thing out in California. That's right. There are ways to address those things and fix those things. And the good news is, like, I, like I'm, I'm still incredibly like hopeful and optimistic. You and I were talking about this. There are absolutely people and organizations on the hospital side, like Oshner, Intermountain Healthcare, Geisinger, like the University of Utah. I mean, there are folks out there that are. Doing doing the right thing. There are groups out there that are starting their own health insurance companies to compete with the major carriers. But the point is, people keep gnawing away at this. So people people get, not all people, but a lot of people get that this is a problem and it needs to change. And there absolutely are people who in pockets have successfully moved the ball down the field. Now, is it large enough for us to sort of feel it and see it and sense it on a national level? No, absolutely not. But at the individual personal level and the local level, there absolutely are things that are improving. And let's talk about another area of people that are inching in and other people's business right now. One of the disruptors, in air quotes, are all of these digital health point solutions, entities, care delivery models, whatever we want to call them. How do you feel that they fit into what we were just talking about? Yeah, obviously, those digital startups and the organizations that invest in them, they're trying to act in a rational fashion. At the end of the day, all those private equity firms, venture capital firms, they've got fiduciary responsibility to make money for their limited partners, right? They're just trying to make to make money. So they're going to do it like any way that they can. And in fact, there are even venture capital firms and private equity firms who are like, play, I mean, they're basically playing both sides. They've, they have investments that are trying to increase healthcare costs and they have investments that are trying to decrease healthcare costs. The organizations that are effectively going towards, you know, triple aim, quadruple aim, whatever, increasing quality, lowering costs, et cetera. Like there are organizations that have had success for their investors. And probably the biggest, one of the biggest ones around that is Teladoc. I mean, Teladoc has been hurting in the in the markets recently, but at the end of the day, it's still a huge overall success for their investors. There are gobs and gobs of other, you know, companies out there trying to follow in those footsteps. Now, in the same breath, I will tell you, healthcare is glacial. Like it is slow. And so when we say change, we're not talking Instagram, you know, billion dollar exit within months. That's that's not going to happen. I was able to watch Teladoc from its very early stages because they got started here in Dallas, just where we are. And Teladoc was around for a long time. My only reason for making that point is don't confuse slowness for lack of progress. So just because it's not happening overnight doesn't mean it's not happening. It takes time. If we're talking about Teladoc, maybe up until lately, kind of a darling, really, an exemplar of success in the healthcare industry for shareholders, do you feel that if we're looking at this from a patient standpoint, they have been equally influential? Absolutely. There is no doubt that there are thousands, if not millions of people who have had like their prescriptions run out and couldn't get in touch with their regular doctor. And they called up any telemedicine company and are like, hey, I need, I need a refill on this. I can't get a hold of my doctor. And they tell you, we give me a refill. 
Like that's incredibly helpful. Likewise, there's medical situations, whether it be, you know, bladder infections or other things where it's like, you know, you really don't need to be seen and I can't get a hold of my doctor because it's it's a it's a night or it's a weekend or it's a holiday. I totally got saved from literal pain and suffering because I was able to use this telemedicine service. But it's not just telemedicine services. There are other areas of healthcare innovation that absolutely have alleviated suffering. Like, shoot, at my old company, Compass, we had a guy who was getting balanced billed for 15 grand for a, a cardiac cath that was, it was totally wrong. He did not own the 15 grand and he was delaying retiring because of that bill. That was wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like literally wow. was causing like life changes for people. It's not, you're not going to see it on the front page in the newspaper, but there are individual people who have absolutely benefited from this stuff. You know, somebody else's profit is somebody else's expense, right? right? And you can look at that from a customer standpoint, but you also can look at that from a competitive standpoint. Like if you have all these digital, you know, you got Teladoc coming in and you gave three examples there. You gave refills and you said they're not going to their doctor for that refill. Uh, bladder infection, again, saved them an in-person visit. And then the alleviating pain and suffering a bunch of different ways, right? By not paying somebody 15 grand who had that on some balance sheet somewhere. If we're thinking about this relative to who is losing revenue that they previously had, because this dynamic is the people jumping in other people's swim lane dynamic, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that money is literally going to come out of the pockets of doctors and hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies. There are essentially two sides of the equation. You've got folks that want healthcare costs to go up and you want folks that healthcare, want healthcare costs to go down. And at the end of the day, if you're a hospital and if you're like a doctor, like you want your income to go up, which means healthcare costs go up. If you're a pharmaceutical company, you want healthcare costs to go up. If you are a medical device company, you want healthcare costs to go up because that's your revenue. Now, of course, again, this is where the euphemisms come in. No one wants to say that, but that's what they want. And then you've got people on the other side that are typically with employers and governments and patients that are like, we want healthcare costs to go down. Now, there are individual battles in that up and down every day across America. And in some situations, for certain people in certain situations, the healthcare costs are absolutely going up. And for other people in other situations, the healthcare costs are absolutely going down. So it's incredible. It's like, it's like the weather. Like, what's the average weather in America? Well, that's completely irrelevant. <laughs> that is a, what's the average temperature in America? That's not, that's not a very helpful statistic. You want to know specifically what's going on for you in your situation. And is your healthcare cost temperature going up or is it going down? And there's pockets of innovation that have totally helped people. There's other pockets of dramatic increased healthcare costs without significant value added to the patient. So who's got the biggest X on their back? You know what I mean? Like the biggest entities that everybody's trying to steal their lunch, their revenue streams. Who would you? That's right. The largest source of healthcare cost is hospitals. Of the, you know, whatever, it's 3 trillion, 4 trillion, whatever the number with a T is now these days for total overall healthcare cost, over a trillion of it is hospitals. So the hospitals have the X on their back because they're, you know, why do robbers go to banks? Because that's where the money is. So that's why folks have hospitals with an X on their back. Now, how do you have an X on a hospital's back? You have an X on their back because hospitals live and breathe on their patient volume. That you see health insurance carriers, Anthem, United, CVS, Aetna, and Cigna are all doing virtual primary care now or releasing in 2022. Why? Because 
that is going to take away hospital volume. That's what they want to do. They want to take away hospital volume. The local Blue Cross of Texas plan in Dallas opened their own clinics. So there used to be a line, right, where the health insurance carriers wouldn't treat patients and the, and the, and the hospitals wouldn't start health insurance companies. The health insurance companies are treating patients and they want to do it more. UHC has bought a whole bunch of practices in Southern California. They bought a big practice up in uh, Boston. I mean, they are treating patients, and they're doing that because they want to take patient volume away from hospitals. Employers are opening on-site near-site clinics. They're contracting with direct primary care practices. Why? Because they want to take patient volume away from these hospitals, and they can do it. They can do it for a number of reasons. One, because they have the money. So one of the things that COVID has caused is you know, who made record profits during, during COVID? All the health insurance companies. The health insurance companies have gobs of money. A lot of the employers have a ton of money to be able to spend on like a clinic. The historic healthcare system has really fallen apart for a lot of people, not being able to get access, not being able, you know, et cetera. For all, I mean, shoot, we talked to hospital systems that like they, to this day, they still don't want to do telemedicine visits for their patients. I mean, we're like a year and a half into this pandemic and you've got major hospital systems that still like can't get their act together around providing telemedicine. So like, what, what do people do? Like they got to see the doctor somewhere. Because of the tremendous amount of money that goes into hospital costs and because so many other folks now actually have the time and the money to work to take patient volume away from hospitals, they're doing it. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, especially relative to telehealth. Like I just saw a survey Actually, John Marchica mentioned this in an earlier show that in general, hospital executives are saying that if the payment rate would drop to 65% of an in-person visit, they're going to, even the ones that are doing telehealth would be like, we're done with telehealth. What immediately came to mind when I heard that was like that Walgreens ESI battle. I, it was probably five, six years ago. Sure. I don't know if people remember that. Where Walgreens, they had a lot of hubris there. So ESI was trying to lock them into probably some contract terms, which weren't super for Walgreens. <laughs> Not in any way taking anybody's side here in this. Sure. But Walgreens was like, no, our customers are so loyal to us that the blowback is going to be on ESI. If they kick us out of their network because we don't agree to these terms, so many people who are so loyal to us are going to complain to their employers and that's going to get back to ESI and then they're going to have to agree to our terms. That's the position that we're going to take in this game of chicken. And what wound up happening was that that was not true. Walgreens got their lunch eaten by ESI. Turns out their patients weren't actually all that loyal. That's um, right. So, you know, you wonder whether these hospital systems, uh, patients have gotten used to telemedicine, right? Like, again, if I want to get my drug refilled, am I going to take a half day off of work to go sit in a doctor's office? So, Well, at a very, at a very basic level, like, I, I, someone made a comment on one of my LinkedIn posts. It was like yesterday, a couple days ago. And it, it's actually a nurse administrator at a hospital. And she's like, when are these hospitals going to stop, like, making themselves look like Disney World? It's like, at the end of the day, you don't want to go to the hospital. The hospital is like an undesirable place to go to. You can't make it a destination that you want to go to because inherently you just don't want to go. Yeah, although they are the profit centers for a number of these integrated delivery networks and, and health systems. You know, like hospitals have traditionally been a profit center. So you can see why they want a waterfall in the lobby. And at the end of the day, just like in your Express Scripts and Walgreens example, it's like, where, where are people going to be going? And right now, it's really hard. The hospitals are so focused 
on the staffing. And they're so focused on that, that to a certain extent, also the carriers and you know other companies, et cetera, are like, okay, right now the hospitals, not only have they historically been a huge, to your point, cost center, but two, they're distracted. They can't innovate. They can't change because they're so caught up in the immediacy of the corona pandemic. Just like in the savannah of Africa, if there's a wounded gazelle, the lions are going to go after it. I'm not saying that to be mean or to say that that's right, but they they smell blood in the water and they're going after them. In this respect, I feel definitely for the the hospital systems who are throwing their backs into treating all these COVID patients. And I'm sure both of us have a number of provider friends and colleagues who have been on the brunt of that. In that respect, it's tough. But this is the distinction. This is not an issue of the patient caregivers. This is not the, an issue of the techs and the respiratory therapists and the nurses and the doctors. This is in terms of the leadership structure of the hospital. Hospitals are not run by clinicians. They're not run by doctors and nurses, et cetera. They're not. And so this is really around what have the historical priorities been of the administrators of those hospitals. And they have been in orthopedic surgery and cancer care and stenting of arteries in the legs. All those things are reactive, right? Every hospital CFO knows that they need sick people. They need sick people. It's only the CFO who's blunt enough to admit that. Geisinger gets this, and Intermountain Health gets this. You know, Geisinger's like, we don't want to have a hospital in 20 years because we need to be out in the community treating people so that they don't need to come into the hospital. Like, Geisinger's goal is to, like, not have a hospital anymore because they get it. It was the same thing with Carmouche down at Oshner. He's like, we're going out into the community. The way that you make this happen is you have to get outside of the Taj Mahal hospital and you got to get out into the community. If you do that, that's the way that you improve patient outcomes and you decrease costs by getting out of the four walls of the hospital. And this is not some Eric Bricker idea. Like other people have done this successfully and it's their goal. It's not my goal. It's their goal. And they've accomplished it. You're referring to David Carmouche and what he did at Oshner. That's episode 343. The In most cases, unfortunate reality is that many don't see the business case in preventative medicine. That's the hard part here. Well, because there isn't. In order to, and, that, and that's where, because that's where in, in fee-for-service there isn't. So the point is, is not to try to, you know, change people's mind. As you've made a million points on this uh, podcast, guys here's got a health plan. They're essentially getting capitated premium. So it is in their financial best interest to do that. Likewise with Intermountain, they've got a health plan. They're taking capitated premium. Oshner's doing the same thing. They're taking capitated premium from their MA plans. So the payment has to come first. The payment change has to come first. So that consulting firm that said, do whatever you do, milk fee-for-service for as long as possible, that was pre-COVID. Now that same hospital system needs to take that consulting report and throw it in the garbage. I saw Merrill Guzer his newsletter the other day, and he was defining a silo as a wall around a commodity. And everybody knows that the healthcare industry has more walled gardens than probably any other industry. If you have these stakeholders getting up in somebody else's business, and now you've got payviders who, who both share, you would assume, a data set or don't have any financial interest in info blocking. There's a huge financial incentive to information block if you're worried about network leakage. Do you feel that ultimately this, you know, forget about the financial implications at this juncture, but do you feel like it's just a matter of time before we wind up enabling a longitudinal patient journey that is a little less delicate if we have one entity that is controlling more and more of that patient journey. 
Or are the financial incentives still just so stark and the difficulties of data integration so high that it's not going to make much of a dent? My short answer to you is that it's the latter. The money wins. Let me give you a specific example of that. So when I did my residency training at Johns Hopkins, we had like all the Hopkins patients that we had, they got all their care at Hopkins. There was no issue of like like data interoperability or like we had all of the information. Like I never didn't have information on my patients. I had complete information on my patients. And the only way that that information is actually helpful is if the clinician uses it. Literally, and it's called a chart biopsy. That's the slang term. Literally, you would spend hours on just like one patient looking through gobs and gobs of previous data. It takes a ton of time. And guess what? The really good attending physicians, honestly, were better at chart biopsying than like anybody I've ever seen. They're so much better than the rest. They, they could go through somebody's chart. So I mean, it's unreal. Unreal how good. And they could do it so fast. Like so fast, meaning like it would still take them like a half hour. A half hour of like a 55-year-old cardiologist's time is incredibly expensive. What am I getting at? The quote-unquote value of all this quote-unquote data integration, yada, yada, is only if the clinician actually looks it up and use it. Fine. All those doctors at Hopkins were paid on salary. None of them were paid fee-for-service. Fine. Fast forward. I go out work in the community. Every doctor is paid fee-for-service, not on salary. What do they do? They don't look into that data because it takes too much time. I worked at a very large hospital system that had fully, fully integrated data. Now, it wasn't as good as the Hopkins stuff, but they had tons of tons of data. Guess what? Doctors wouldn't look at it. Why? It takes too much time. In, a, in my opinion, the value of all of this interoperability data integration, I think it's overblown because at the end of the day, unless you have a reimbursement system that actually allows the physicians to take the time to look into it, then it won't be, it won't be looked into. It won't be used. I think the payment's got to change. You just, you got to get docs on salary. You got to get them off a fee for service. I know there's a gazillion people that disagree with me on this. It's okay, but you've got to put the financial incentives in place in order to make people actually behave the way that they should. Yeah, and hopefully somebody didn't just cut and paste the same note 18 times. So you got to wait oh, through no, that. And, that, and, and, that <laughs> and that's gotten worse. And like since I finished residency in 2007, it's gotten even worse. The amount of cutting and pasting between then and now is, is much worse today. Dr. Bricker, is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you want to mention? I just want to close by saying that you are doing a tremendous service to all your listeners. I listen to your podcast constantly. I think that you, like I said, like you literally know more about healthcare than like 99% of the people out there, if not 99.9% of the people out there. So if there's one word of advice I can give, I say, go back. And listen to more of Stacy's podcasts because that they're, they're gold. Well, that is so kind and it makes my heart so warm, especially coming from you. I, I would absolutely say the same thing about your A to Z healthcare series. I, I see them in my inbox and I immediately put them on my schedule. So thank you so much for all of the work that you've done and, and, and continue to do there. Dr. Eric Bricker, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value Podcast today. Thank you, Stacy. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps. Thanks so much for listening.